Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the race to unseat Democrat Kim Schreier in the 8th Congressional District heats up, and it's pitting Republican against Republican. Only one person cut police funding more than liberal congresswoman Kim Schreier, career politician Reagan Dunn. Drama at the Capitol as for the first time we hear radio calls of the Secret Service detail protecting Vice President Mike Pence during the insurrection. Rioters chanted to hang the Vice President. They are on the second floor, moving in now. You may want to consider getting out and leaving now. The fight over gay marriage is front and center nearly a decade after it was legalized nationwide. Well, when you look at the law, gay rights, gay marriage, even contraception would fall under these same headings. And so I would expect that we may see cases like that and we'd overturn that too. California takes a Texas-style approach to curbing gun violence. By allowing 40 million Californians to enforce the law of the state of California. And how a recession could be the only solution to inflation. All of that coming up this hour, but first, a lot of people called it the season finale of must-see TV, and that was the January 6th hearings. They held their ninth hearing this past week, laying out the case against former President Donald Trump in his actions to overturn the 2020 election. Joining me now is Dan Balls, reporter for The Washington Post, and the big thing that we saw come from this, I think, was this line from Adam Kinzinger. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home, he chose not to act. Yeah, I I was struck by a a number of things, as I think most of the people who watched it were. I was obviously struck by what Donald Trump didn't do, uh, which was kind of the focus of the hearing, uh, the dereliction of duty, if you will. Um, I was also struck by some of the things he did do, um, which were pretty startling, including as as it was laid out kind of minute by minute, that tweet he did attacking Vice President Pence at 2.24 in the afternoon when the Capitol's clearly under assault and, and the vice president's security detail is concerned not only about his safety, but their own safety. Um, and this is a, a time when people around him in the White House want him to do, some, to do something to, you know, quell the violence, to turn it down, to turn it off, to get people to go home. Uh, And instead, he throws gasoline on that fire that, you know, that was raging because he he had lit it earlier. Um, And I thought it was extraordinary uh, the way he did that. I also was struck by the fact that while he, you know, he didn't do a lot of things, one of the things he did uh, was he called Rudy Giuliani, which was all part of the continuing effort to find, you know, sympathetic senators or House members who would who would slow down or disrupt the process. So uh, it was a combination of what he did do and what he didn't do that what I thought was very striking. One of the other things that seemed at least very damning to me was that rather long gap in the uh, what they call the TikTok, the minute-by-minute accounting of the president's actions. There were several hours while the Capitol was under attack where either no records were taken of what the president was doing or the records seemed to have disappeared. Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, you know, because we know from you know the White House logs of every president who's been in in the office uh, how detailed they are. You know, they just don't miss anything. And here you have, you know, as you say, a several hour gap. I mean, from the testimony, we know that he was in the dining room, which is just off the Oval Office in the West Wing, um, watching Fox News for several hours. 
But we also know, uh, presumably from from Rudy Giuliani's phone, uh, that he called Giuliani. We know that he called Senator Tuberville. Uh, I think he ended up getting Senator Lee, but he was seeking Senator Tuberville. Um, well, all of this was off the books. I think another thing that was quite extraordinary was that the White House photographer, again, somebody who, you know, who shadows presidents wherever they go and is, you know, is constantly making photographs, was not allowed to make photographs during that entire period. So it, it, it is, it's like they, they, the president deliberately created a black hole uh, in the middle of this horrific event. So what do you think the consequences for this is going to be? Because this is really unprecedented. The only sort of parallel I can think of were those gaps in the uh, Nixon phone records to what we're seeing here, the gaps in the presidential daily log. What What's going to come of this? I don't know what will come of that. And, and, I, and I don't know at this point um, whether you know, some of the new information that Chairman Benny Thompson has said repeatedly has, has continued to come in since they began the public hearings. I don't know whether there's anything further there. But I, I also think we know so much now about what he was doing in in that period or what he wasn't doing that I don't know whether, unless there's a real bombshell, that it will dramatically affect what you know, what the conclusions that people have drawn about his behavior during that period. And the other thing that kind of struck me is that this uh, committee, the January 6th committee investigating the attack, is focusing so much on Donald Trump, but there are so many other people that were involved in this. It, it, it seems like they're going after one individual, and clearly Rudy Giuliani was involved. We saw this past week Steve Bannon was indicted uh, and found guilty. Uh, there's got to be a lot of other people that were involved in this that uh, could be guilty of crimes as well. Well, that's certainly the case. I think that, uh, I mean, we may hear more about Steve Bannon. Um, we may hear more about Rudy Giuliani. I think everybody would like to hear more from Mark Meadows, who was the White House chief of staff at the time. But I, I think it's been clear from the beginning of uh, the public phase of these uh, of this investigation, uh, that they were seeking to make a case about Donald Trump. Now, all they can do once they reach all of their conclusions is make referrals to the Department of Justice. And it's really up to the Department of Justice to decide what to do with the evidence that has that has been presented and the information that's been presented. Uh, we know that one of the questions that, that the attorney general is going to have to ask and answer himself is, will they go forward with a, with a criminal indictment of the former president? But I think as part of that investigation, and we see evidence as the, you know, as the investigation has gone from people who, you know, broke into the Capitol to some of the, you know, some of the Proud Boys people and some of the others, uh, that they're, you know, that they're circling, which is the nature of a big investigation like this. And so I would think that there are there are other people who are, you know, who are being investigated for possible criminal action by the Justice Department. But but certainly the largest question that Merrick Garland will have to answer has to do with what happens with former President Trump. And all of this uh, is happening during an election year. The midterms are coming up. Uh, do we expect the committee, because they said again in, in the hearing this week that they've got more information, more evidence that's come in. They're taking a bit of a break through the August recess, but they're going to reconvene in September. They've got a clock that's ticking because if Republicans take over in the November elections, January 3rd, when the new Congress is sworn in, they're going to end this. Oh, absolutely. And they know that. They well know that. Um, they may be the, 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 the members of the committee 
committee may be, or Congress may be on recess in August, but uh, the, the committee folks made clear that the staff will be working throughout August to follow up on the leads that they've gotten and, and to pursue whatever whatever new um, angles that they're pursuing and to try to you know, expand further uh, what we know about some of the things that have already, already been presented publicly. But they know they have a, a, a year-end deadline and they will, you know, they will certainly wrap up their work by then. But I, I think there's a feeling that there's just, you know, that, 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 that there is a lot of work still left to do. Um, and they're, you know, they're moving as quickly as they can. Finally, do you think the hearings are changing anyone's mind? Well, I think I think many people did have their minds made up going in. Um, but I think that these hearings have had an impact on people. Um, I don't know yet whether it's really changed minds, but I think that uh, I think it's had an impact on how people look at Donald Trump, even people who were good supporters of him. I, I'm, I'm not talking about the the true blue, you know, MAGA loyalists. I think that they love Donald Trump and they will continue to love Donald Trump and, and they will see nothing wrong in anything he's done and they'll believe that the election was stolen. But I think that there are other people who may have voted for him who are looking at this with, if, if not a totally fresh eye, with, you know, with some added concern. Um, and there's certainly more talk you know, in in political circles about possible challengers to Donald Trump or Trumpian-like figures who don't come with the baggage of Donald Trump. That's all very preliminary. Uh, we have to get through the 2022 election and then kind of see how things begin to lay out for the 2024 cycle. But I think that if you're in Donald Trump's shoes, on the one hand, you say, you know, I'm still the most dominant figure in the Republican Party and the one who would likely win the nomination battle. But you also say, these hearings have not been helpful to me, and I've got to think about what that means. All right, Dan Balls with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Now, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Republicans go after each other in hopes of taking over the House when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, over in the 8th Congressional District, it is one of the, shall we say, swingingest districts in not only Washington State, but in the country, and could be key to Republicans gaining control of the U.S. House of Representatives this fall. But already... It's Republican on Republican as several of them battle to unseat Democrat Kim Schreier. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is editor and writer of the Washington Observer. You can find out at washingtonobserver.substack.com. And the interesting thing here is it looks like more Trump-leaning Republicans are pouring in a bunch of money to defeat Reagan Dunn, the more moderate Republican on the ballot. Well, and uh, you know, it's sort of hard to really make a big distinction ideologically between these candidates. If you'll remember, Kim Schreier won that seat in 2018, which was a huge wave year for Democrats. And that was the year that Dave Reichert, um, who had held it for, for many years, decided not to run for re-election. So it was an open seat. Two years ago, a guy named Jesse Jensen, whom nobody had ever really heard of at the time, um, challenged her and got 48% of the vote, even though he didn't get a lot of Republican support from national Republican money. Now, this year, Jensen's running again, but we also have 
a guy named Matt Larkin, who ran for attorney general a couple of years ago, and more importantly, Reagan Dunn, the King County Councilman, who is the son of Jennifer Dunn, who used to hold that seat back in the day. And when Dunn got in, he was sort of generally considered the presumptive frontrunner. But he's got some kind of baggage. You know, he had struggles with alcohol and he had a really nasty divorce. And there's some concern that he would be vulnerable to Schreier in the fall. And so what we've seen is a handful of wealthy conservatives put together this this pack called Lead the Way, which is a reference to the motto of the U.S. Army Rangers. Jesse Jensen was was an Army Ranger. And they're running ads in the district, sending out mailers, highlighting Dunn's struggles with alcohol and the problems that were associated with that. It's just a really interesting development because obviously Dunn has really high name recognition. It makes an already interesting and tight race probably tighter and more interesting. So what do we know about Jesse Jensen? I mean, he's, he, as you say, a former Army Ranger. He is a millennial, born in 1983, certainly far to the right than, than most of the district in the 8th. He's a conservative Republican, as is Matt Larkin. Dunn has always had a little bit more of a kind of moderate vibe to him. His mother was certainly considered an old school um, you know, kind of east side moderate in, you know, back when folks like that got elected in the eastern suburbs of King County all the time. But I don't know that the distinction that you would really want to sweat blood trying to tell the difference in terms of how these folks would likely vote. Obviously, the 48 percent he got two years ago uh, kind of gave him a bit of a boost, gave him some confidence. And now, now he's running again. And as you say, the name recognition of Reagan Dunn is hard to beat. So going negative right away, is that really a good strategy? Well, and it's, and to be clear, Jensen himself is not going negative. That's very true. This is going, a pack. Right. There's some people going negative on his behalf, and it's it's illegal for them to coordinate. Um, but, the, you know, I'm familiar with the, the folks who are backing this campaign, and they're what you might think of as kind of the new smart money in Republican politics in Washington state, and they've put a bunch of money into various local races in recent years. They've had kind of mixed success in terms of actually getting the folks that they were backing elected, but the interesting thing about this race is that with, you know, three pretty legitimate Republican candidates in the race, the national Republican money's on the sidelines until the primary is over. So this independent campaign actually makes a pretty sizable splash in the race in terms of, you know, the amount of mail and direct uh, digital advertising and TV time that it can buy. So who is behind this pack? The name that was most prominent to me was a guy named Steve Gordon, who made his money in trucking and truck dealerships. And he founded a thing called Concerned Taxpayers of Washington State. And its founding principle was essentially alarm at the leftward lurch of Washington state politics. And he's backed conservative candidates for the legislature. And in local races, he backed incumbent King County Councilwoman Kathy Lambert last year. And he's drawn in some of the other big donor players into this into this race. The biggest donor is a guy, a financial planner who goes by the name of Phil Scott who gave $100,000. I think Gordon gave $50,000. So it's at this point, it's just a handful of wealthy individuals and not the big sort of institutional donors that we sometimes see in, in state-level politics. 
So where is this money going? Obviously, we've seen some of these mailers, but are we expected to see some serious uh, advertising here now that people have their ballots so like on television yeah, stations I mean, and things like that? It, right. There's there's some TV time. Uh, there's some digital advertising. It, and it's kind of a mix. The mailer, there's a long mailer. And if you look at the piece that I wrote about this, I included the entire mailer. And it's, it's a pretty hard-hitting piece. It's real hardball um, that goes after... Dunn's, you know, problems with alcohol. And then there's a couple of sort of comparative pieces. You know, they're more along the lines of Reagan Dunn is a, you know, career politician and Jesse Jensen is a, you know, army ranger who would bring a fresh voice, that that kind of messaging. I mean, it, it's a fairly typical, maybe a little tougher than usual independent campaign. And usually the way that works is that the campaign, the candidate's campaign focuses on building up the candidate. And the independent committees focus on tearing down the opponent. And taking a look at uh, one of these mailers that they've sent out, uh, quoting from it, Reagan Dunn, DUI, binge drinking, relapses, empty promises. Quote, we can all agree Reagan Dunn needs support, but Reagan Dunn does not need our vote. That, as you say, is is hitting pretty hard. Uh, is there a possibility this backfires? It's always hard to exactly measure that. For example, in last year's Seattle mayor's race, Lorena Gonzalez went hard after Bruce Harrell late in the in the race. And that's generally presumed to have backfired a little bit because she had to back away from the ad and there was a lot of noise around it. We, you know, we know negative campaigning works and the whole question of whether there's a lot of backlash and sympathy for the target. I don't know that that's pretty well proven. And frankly, it's pretty hard to measure. In past races, Reagan Dunn has seen challenges from the right. I remember he was disinvited from a number of Lincoln Day parties because he dared support gay marriage when it was on the ballot here in Washington state. So he is not exactly the favor of the Washington state GOP. I think that that sort of depends on which wing you're you're at. I do think that there's certainly an element of the Republican Party that finds him too moderate. But he's also a proven name brand. Um, he, you know, has held that King County Council seat for many years now. He made a pretty strong run for attorney general in 2012. Folks like a winner. And in many circles, he's viewed as the person most likely to take that seat back. But I will say that one of the interesting things about this Lead the Way PAC effort is they commissioned a poll and it tested the question of whether he was vulnerable. And, you know, depending on how, how much trust you put in that kind of poll, it, it indicates that he is, that he would be vulnerable to attacks like this from Schreier or from Democratic PACs if he were on the ballot in November. So if this works, if this strategy from this PAC works and we see Jesse Jensen win through the primary, does he have a chance in the 8th Congressional District? Obviously, it's very tight, but very tight doesn't necessarily mean they want an extreme candidate one way or the other. Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting question. I don't know that in the current climate that Dunn is sufficiently moderate to win over many Democratic voters. I think that it's more a question of, is there a sort of general dissatisfaction with Democrats, with President Biden? And does that drag a lot of independent swing voters into the Republican column? And the question of whether Dunn's stances on a handful of issues are enough to reassure people to do that compared to Jensen, I, I, that's not a question that I think is is really that easy to answer. So as with so many times, it's probably going to come down to get out the vote. 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, th- and that's always the name of the game, especially in, you know, off year elections, you know, you got to turn out your folks. And I think there's indications that folks on both sides of the aisle are fired up and voters are cranky about the economy and inflation and Democratic voters are definitely cranky about the Roe versus Wade decision. So it'll be an interesting race to watch. All right, Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Happy to help. We have to take another quick break, but coming up, California responds to Texas with a new law aimed at cutting gun violence when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, when Texas became the first state to let citizens sue to enforce abortion laws, California Governor Gavin Newsom angrily went on social media and said California would respond by doing the same with guns. Other conservative-run states cautioned against their own similar abortion bills because liberal states could do the same with firearms. And now it looks like they're heading in that direction. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. So uh, what's the latest? Has California actually uh, followed through with that threat? Well, yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, this was something that, that at the beginning when uh, Governor Newsom came out, Jeff, the, the people said, no, that California won't go down that road. And it is now. This is 100 percent a law to get back at Texas for that law, allowing residents to sue abortion providers. And California even wrote into its law that if the law in Texas goes away in some way, either Texas pulls it back or it's invalidated, the California will void its law immediately. So this is totally in response to that. But now Governor Newsom doing this and enshrine this bill in the law in the state of California. Signing that bill, allowing California residents now to enforce state gun law by uh, suing uh, anything uh, that the state considers to be an assault rifle, including AR-15s, ghost guns, can sue gun makers, distributors, sellers, and for a lot of money. By allowing 40 million Californians to enforce the law of the state of California. And when Texas passed its law, as you mentioned, Jeff, some Republicans said, whoa, be careful. Some of the justices said the potential was there as well that more liberal states would do it with guns. And and Newsom says, look, he threatened to do it, and that's what he's doing now. Supreme Court uh, upheld the Texas law. California's law is identical, but pretty much put guns in instead of abortion. And that's why Newsom says, hey, we can do it. The Supreme Court opened the door. The Supreme Court said this was okay. And he says without voiding Texas, California can't be stopped. There's no principle way the United States Supreme Court can overturn this law and uphold the right for Texas to continue to move forward with SB8. Now, this, Jeff, could overwhelm gun makers and sellers with lawsuits that you've got any Californian can now sue if they know of a crime, if a crime was committed, if they even know of a, an AR that was sold in the state or another one of the guns that are on the ban list uh, that, that somehow it got into the state, was distributed, then they can sue. And if a Californian wins in court, they get a bounty of $10,000 and their legal fees paid for by the state. So there is that incentive as well. And Newsom saying... If they're going to use Texas and Greg Abbott and their Republican leadership, if they're going to use this framework to put women's lives at risk, we're going to use it to save people's lives. 
It'll take effect uh, next year, part of a, a suite of new gun laws that Newsom signed uh, in the last couple of days. And in recent days, Newsom uh, going after Abbott in newspapers in Texas, uh, touting what he's doing with gun laws in California. He had been doing that with DeSantis in Florida. A lot of politics involved here, but bottom line... Yeah, Californians are going to be able to sue. And obviously, there's been a lot of speculation about Gavin Newsom maybe running for president. Uh, how much of that is, is being factored in here? Well, he says it absolutely not. He has said over and over again that he has no interest in doing that, but there's a lot of belief that he does. And he was in Washington, D.C. last week, asked by reporters, and he said no, and I don't know how many ways I have to say it. No interest whatsoever, not going to do it. Uh, but... He is putting out ads in uh, media in Florida and in Texas and doing uh, these, uh, signing these bills into law, uh, a lot of high-profile events. Could that change? Yeah, quite possibly. But as of right now, he says no way. Has there been any response from Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis over this? No, we haven't heard from either of them uh, at this point. We may uh, in the coming days. But the, the warnings were definitely out there, even though... Uh, some who support what Texas is doing and not what California is doing may say, well, this is misusing the, the, the law and, and getting creative with it. Newsom admits that. He says he doesn't like that the courts upheld what Texas was doing and they shouldn't uphold what, what California is doing. But if they uphold Texas, they have to uphold California. And he said if, if they went and did that in Texas, he's going to utilize everything he's got to do it here. So he admits that if he were from the outside, he wouldn't like that the, the now every Californian can sue and, and overwhelm uh, companies with lawsuits. But he says, hey, if they're allowed to do it there, we'll do it here. How much support does a bill like this have in California? Obviously, California is a very blue state, but there's some deep red pockets as well. There are some very deep red areas. They're not supportive of it in those areas, as you can imagine. But, you know, there is that part of it of, okay... The system was finagled in Texas to, to make that and get very creative to make that work and not be overturned, that that uh, is going to work in, in California, that they don't now know how to get rid of it because nobody was able to get rid of it in Texas. So now it seems like it's here to stay in California. But overwhelming where the population centers are, the Bay Area, L.A., the areas that, uh, that, that are overwhelmingly blue, they're cheering him on. At the event when he was signing the, the bill, we heard from victims of gun violence, one from Saugus, a town near L.A. that had a school shooting several years ago. Uh, victims, he was actually at Santa Monica College when he did it. They had a mass shooter in 2013. And uh, those are folks who were cheering him on, saying something needs to be done, and they say he's doing it. All right, ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for your time. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, if you thought the issue of gay marriage was settled, think again when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the House voted on a bill to codify same-sex marriage 
into federal law. The Respect for Marriage Act cleared the House, but an uncertain future in the Senate. How many times have we said that about any kind of a bill, despite which party holds which chamber? Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, what is the the impetus for this Respect for Marriage Act here, Andy? Uh, Clarence Thomas is the short answer. Clarence Thomas wrote, a concurring opinion in the last Supreme Court decision that basically gutted Roe versus Wade, the right to privacy and the right to have an abortion in any state in this country. And he wrote, he says, you know, when you look at the law, gay rights, gay marriage, even contraception would fall under these same headings. And so I would expect that we may see cases like that and we'd overturn that too. I'm paraphrasing broadly here, but that set a chill down the spine of most of the country, especially with contraception and anyone, gay, straight, any kind of marriage you're thinking about for a Supreme Court justice to suggest that they put that back in the hands of the states is way too far for most Americans. And so that's why the House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats, but not by much, along with some Republicans who seem to be on board with us here saying, look, we want to be able to respect that marriage is considered valid under federal law if it was legal in the state where it was performed. So let's say you get married in Washington state and you move to Kansas or Arkansas where this outlaws uh, same-sex marriage, you would no longer be considered married. Well, under this respect for marriage law, it would say, no, you've got to be considered married uh, under federal law, which supersedes local law. Uh, and it would grant the U.S. Attorney General the authority to enforce that rule through civil action. It would also fully get rid of what was known as the Defense of Marriage Act, known as DOMA. That was signed into law by President Clinton back in 1996 that uh, defined marriage as being the union of one man and one woman. Look how far we've come since 1996. However, the Supreme Court kind of gutted that law uh, through rulings uh, starting around 213, and of course the one that uh, guaranteed same-sex marriage. So basically, Congress doesn't want to leave it up to the Supreme Court windmill or wind vane that keeps turning, depending on whether conservatives or liberals are in charge. Now, the big problem, as you mentioned, is what's going to happen in the Senate. And the reason Democrats are pushing this here is they want to embarrass Republicans. Uh, this is an election year. The midterms are coming up, and they want to use this as a sledgehammer against Republicans who may vote against this to say, Really? Okay, well, just, just to let you know, the guy who's running here doesn't want you to be married to the person you love, whether you're a man, woman, doesn't matter. And that could become a giant election issue. So uh, they're hoping it passes in the Senate, which would be interesting. But if it doesn't, the Democrats are going to use this as a weapon against the Republicans in the upcoming election. Do we have any indication of how many Republicans might support this bill? Because they seem to be pretty much in lockstep in striking down Roe versus Wade in the House, not so much in the Senate. But in in the, on this issue, on the issue of gay marriage, how many Republicans do you think are siding with the Democrats? Well, they couch it in a very different way. They, they don't want to be seen as homophobic. They don't want to be seen as intolerant. So what they're saying instead is the states should decide their own same-sex marriage laws. It's how it's always been and how it always should be. Uh, that's where they will say that, and we've seen Ted Cruz say this over the weekend, uh, the Republican from Texas saying, you know, he's not coming out and saying, no, I don't want to see um, gay men or gay women married. It's a, it's a state's rights issue. Uh, the problem is, is that when it becomes a state's rights issue, all Americans do not have the same 
human and civil rights from one state to another when you leave it up to a state to decide those basic things that most of us take for granted. All of this is coming from that concurring opinion written. All of this is coming from that concurring opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas in the striking down of Roe versus Wade. But in the majority opinion written by Samuel Alito, he said nothing in this ruling should be construed to make people think that we are going to strike down other rights, such as the right to contraception or the right to gay marriage. What's the response there? Well, the response is, especially from liberals and and Democrats in the House and Senate and pretty much around the country, is uh, the same Supreme Court justices who were appointed by Donald Trump also swore under oath that Roe versus Wade was decided law and they would respect decided law. And of course, they did not do that. So take that with a grain of salt when you read this Supreme Court decision, uh, the majority decision that said, Uh, We're not going to do these things when Clarence Thomas says, "Eh, maybe we will. So is there any indication that there are court cases coming through some of those conservative states that may seek to strike down gay marriage or strike down the right to contraception? Not yet, but but Clarence Thomas basically invited people to do it. He said, come on down. We'll hear your case. So I would expect that we will hear some of those things soon. All right. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Now, it's important to note that two of Washington's Republicans voted against the measure to codify gay marriage into federal law. Kathy McMorris Rogers of Spokane and fellow Republican Jamie Herrera Butler of the 3rd Congressional District. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, a look at the economy and how intentionally causing a recession could be the only way to bring inflation under control when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, no one hopes for a recession, but some experts argue that could be the only way to bring inflation under control. Joining us now is Washington State economist Paul Turek, who says history should be our guide. You look back at, say, the late 70s where you had this inflation problem and then the 80s had this just booming economy. What ultimately turned things around there? Two things, really. The Demand side of the economy was met by the Federal Reserve by moving up interest rates to uh, extremes. So we had interest rates approaching, I think, 20% during that point in time. That's pretty extreme. That obviously created really dual recessions. First, uh, one one recession, a little bit of a pause, then another recession right after uh, in the early 80s. But what kept it to a minimum and what led to more of an economic revival was the policies aimed at the supply side of the economy. If you're looking at too much money chasing too few goods, you know the solution would, would have to be, well, let's let's have less money. That was the case where the Fed raised interest rates. Let's try to have more goods production. So how do you do that? You encourage producers to produce. So the way you do that is by creating incentives. You lower tax rates for many employers, give tax breaks for investment purposes, more of a pro-business type of approach. And see um, a lot more production that begins to take place as producers ramp up. Put those two together and you should wind up with a bit of an economic revival after the pain that was brought on by 
bringing inflation back under control. It seems like the economy, very cyclical. So how confident are you that the economy will rebound, inflation will get back under control and, and will be a little more stable? The one thing that we're look that we really have to take into consideration is how the Federal Reserve chooses to respond to this. They're being given a lot of authority to bring demand under control. We don't see too much effort at the moment being aimed at the supply side of the economy. So if it's the demand side, we're looking at a balancing act, as I mentioned, in, in terms of how the economy is going to perform relative to higher interest rates. If the Fed chooses to be aggressive, We'll see a recession come on maybe at by the end of the year or at the beginning of next year since there's a lag between the policy and the outcomes in the economy. And if we get that under control and uh, consumer confidence and producer confidence begins to get restored, then that hopefully that recession becomes shallow and we get it on our feet fairly quickly. If the Fed takes a you know less than aggressive approach, uh, we might see inflation that continues. Not sure that it solves itself on its own. Historically, it doesn't. Uh, and we may, may take a little bit longer time to get out of a hole. So we just have to wait and see how, in this case, policy is going to impact producer and consumer behavior. And that's state economist Paul Turek joining us on the Northwest Newsline. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.